Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 411, where we're going to give you the information. <laughs> I couldn't help uh, myself. Yeah, I that hadn't occurred to me. But uh, you're absolutely right. It is like, what's the, it's that's the one for like getting phone numbers for things. No. What do you? I think say? it used to be like Google. I think, I think you called that. <laughs> I don't know if it still exists. Like, I think you called that number when you were looking for information on something like, tell me a local pizza place or what I don't yeah, know I think it was like it was like a phone book but does it still exist I can't decide how old this <laughs> makes us so we're like, we don't quite no, remember I, I think, what it was I think it used to be like used to be like the yellow pages didn't it I can't yeah I mean let's just move on let's okay. what are we what are we giving information on this week <laughs> We have a really amazing question uh, from Holly that um, it's been something that has been kind of bouncing around in my head a lot lately in terms of, you know, if somebody, if I start talking to somebody in terms of like how I eat, like what, what's the vocabulary that I'm using around that? And I just felt like this was a really good time to kind of dig into this, you know, pretty soon after we changed the name of the show. So um, why don't I read Holly's question and then we can kind of dig into it. So Holly writes, Hey ladies, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast and I hope by telling you both how awesome you are that you will answer my question. Just kidding, but I know it can't hurt and it's true. <laughs> she has been listening. She has paid attention and it has paid off. <laughs> I just love that so much. All right. Uh, really, thank you both for all the work you do to keep us in the know. I have been finding the COVID shows so helpful, and I feel like I get to rant with you both. On to my question. Sarah, I noticed your new book has non-paleo and non-AIP foods in it, and I know the podcast name has changed. So, dot, dot, dot. Do you both even still follow a paleo diet? I would love to know what your diets look like now. Also, what do you both recommend now for all of us looking for general health guidelines if paleo is no longer the thing? Thanks again for all you do. P.S. Sorry, Sarah, if you cover this in the book. I admittedly have just done a quick scan and I promise to read it soon. Uh, so I totally forgot to tell our podcast listeners that I just launched my Gut Microbiome book. Sorry. I just, it, it, you know, the difference between Tuesday when we record and Friday when the podcast comes out, sometimes things get lost in that time frame. Um, so the book that Holly is referring to is my new uh, gut health guidebook. So our listeners probably, I'm any of our long-term listeners know that I've been working on a gut microbiome book actually for about six years now. Um, I started this book before writing Healing Kitchen. That's how long ago this book began. Um, and then Healing Kitchen was like a book writing tangent. And then Paleo Principles was a second book writing tangent. And so since Paleo Principles came out, this book has been uh, really my singular focus. And I was wrapping it up sort of early this year and then COVID hit and that basically caused a 
delay in the publication process. I still don't know when it's going to come out. Um, but my guess is at this point is sometime in 2021, like probably a year from now. So what I did, basically, as soon as I found out that it was not going to be the late 2020 book that I had originally been pushing for, um, I basically took the sort of cohesive storyline of diet and lifestyle, and which is about maybe like 60%-ish of the imprint book, um, and package that up into a really enormous ebook. Like it's, um, it's huge. It's over 300 pages and it's all of that dense science with the references and all of the cool little charts. And, um, and so I just launched it. And one of the things that I'm doing, again, I don't think I had told our listeners, but somewhere along the lines over the last year, I realized that, this gut microbiome book couldn't be an all-in-one book like Paleo Principles, just the way it was sort of coming together. It didn't make sense to have such dense science and like a comprehensive cookbook together. It was getting more disjoint. Like with Paleo Principles, it kind of flows. This was not going to flow. So um, what I've also done is I'm taking the companion cookbook um, that was going to be about six months behind the the guidebook. And I'm also creating an ebook version of that. That is going to launch um, in sort of late this summer. And um, I'm, I'm just wrapping up a the few last recipes before I give it to my designer. And then, um, and then, so what you can do is the Gut Health Guidebook is my new ebook that is live. And you can also package it together with a pre-order of the cookbook. And right now I'm offering a special discount for anybody who wants to do that. So the easiest way to find it is to just go to thepaleomom.com and click on books in the top menu and then scroll down and it's right there. I would have reminded you had I also been thinking. Keeping track okay. of time. <laughs> um, so I didn't mention at the top of the show, but we just got back from being in the wilderness for a week, I won't say we were camping because by your definition, it was like full on resort. <laughs> <laughs> you had your own bathroom, right? We did. Yeah. And we with, had a kitchen with, as yeah. well, even with though we plumbing? cooked. Yes. With plumbing. Yeah. So yeah, no, that yeah. was, that was pretty much four star. Absolutely. And <laughs> there was a refrigerator and a cooktop and I had a microwave, though we didn't use that. We did um, prep a lot of food before we left and um, cook over the fire each night. But it was all optional. Had it rained, we would have taken the easy route inside. <laughs> but um, it's interesting to me to think about this question in context of having just been on that trip and mm -hmm. um, the different kinds of foods that uh, we took this trip versus I actually looked back on a glamping blog post from our blog several years ago as I was preparing for this trip to see what we ate and what we took. And things were very similar with some exceptions. And so I think as we talk about what we're kind of each doing and why um, that will weave in and, and that sort of thing. But like, you know, years ago, we did not take um, gluten-free graham crackers, for example. I, right. I made paleo chocolate chip cookies, and then we made marshmallows, and we put them between them. Um, now we took gluten-free graham crackers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
we can talk a little bit about that, but I think it's just kind of interesting for me in the context of um, how things have gone. And I also just want to say for perspective, um, it's been 10 years since we started, over 10 years since we started our journey into what I would now call kind of like a health awakening. Um, We like that. We started with this idea of paleo, but I mean, that that health awakening, so to speak, really started when Cole was born. And I started breastfeeding for the first time. And I realized that like what I was feeding him was directly going into, I don't know why it didn't occur to me in pregnancy, but it just didn't. And um, that transitioned over many years until um, the birth of Wesley. And that was the point at which I realized I, my body was responding to certain foods in a way that was hurting my children. Literally, they were getting colic from the foods that I was eating and passing through breast milk. And so that, what I've learned about my body and the things that it tolerates and doesn't tolerate and not just tolerate, but we've also talked on the show about this idea of what you thrive on versus what mm-hmm. you can tolerate and and how your body kind of, what you need in that balance. Um like how far you can push the foods you tolerate before you need to start focusing on the foods that make you thrive again, that kind of thing. Um, I think it's also interesting in in this world of COVID as we think about how we need our bodies to be thriving and as strong as possible um, versus I, I know that there's a lot of indulgence in the quarantine because of, you know, depression and isolation yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. And if you find yourself in any of these scenarios and any of these boats, if you could see me, I'm like moving my hands around, like I'm shuffling, (laughs) you know, that's where you are is where you are. And there's no shame in where you've been or where you're going or whatever. When we talk about diet, we're talking about how you choose to eat your food. We're not talking about a fad diet, a way that you eat for short term results. And that's always been a concept on this show from, Way back when we were referring to paleo, it was always a lifestyle. If you remember, way, way back in the early days, Sarah defined it as a nutrient-dense, low-inflammatory lifestyle. And to this day, I think when we talk about this, you'll see how what we're doing fits within that definition for us, for Mm -hmm. our families, for our bodies. It just looks a little different. And I think that's what's important to remember is if you focus on what feels best for you if you're truly listening to your body and you're truly paying attention and not just like, you know, ignoring that you're getting tired when you eat something or that you have gas or whatever. Um, you you can find a way to live a balance in your life to um, not hopefully think about food as something that is anything beyond the fuel for your body. I want to refer people back to episode 358 on intuitive eating. I think it was called How Intuitive Eating Has It Wrong, because that show is really representative of our thoughts on anti-diet, our thoughts on intuitive eating, and how you can incorporate that into a way of healthy living, that there there is a... There is a response that your body has, inflammation, hormonal, all those things to certain foods. And to ignore that is not beneficial to your long-term health. But how can you incorporate it without it being um, 
a diet that you punish yourself for that becomes, you know, food as a reward and different kinds of things like that, which isn't good either. So if you find yourself in a place where food has that kind of control or, or thought pattern, please go back and listen to that episode because I think it really will tell the full picture of what we're going to dive into with the way that we um, fuel ourselves and nourish ourselves and try to optimize thriving while still representing um, the emotional importance of some of that stuff. So one of the things that you said that I really loved was that your journey, your health awakening journey really started with Cole because mine really started with Adele. So in my first pregnancy, I had gestational diabetes and I I managed my blood sugars really, really well with just careful measuring everything I ate following a sort of American Diabetes Association type diet. Um, And then when she was one, I realized that I was getting that same feeling of um, sort of a lightheaded, dizzy, um, kind of sickish feeling when I was eating. And um, I still had my blood sugar testing supplies. And I, one day, now, I had had lunch and half a box of Oreo cookies. So keep in mind that half a box of Oreo cookies is a lot of sugar. Um, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know how you stop it, just one row. Um, and I tested my blood sugar. <laughs> that was sarcasm, everybody. <laughs> um, it, Oreo cookies were one of my um, uh, uh, were one of my foods, sort of pre paleo. That I guess they were one of my binge foods, right? So one of the foods that I would um, I had a really hard time with self control with. And, um, but I felt super sick and I went and tested my blood sugar and it was 200, which is the cusp between prediabetes and type two diabetes. Um, and I, now I do not recommend this at all. This is a bad Sarah. I should not have done this, but I never told my doctor, um, bad. That, That was not a good choice. That was a irresponsible. Um, but I felt so much, guilt around that because I had done my PhD in a vascular surgery research laboratory. Um, and with, you know, the chief of surgery was my co-supervisor. And, um, and so one of, you know, one of the things is that, is that their patients are either smokers, diabetics, or diabetic smokers, right? Those are the diseases that destroy vasculature and that have you have, you know, major problems, clots and, embolisms. And, um, and I was so intimately aware with the consequences of diabetes. And I was looking at this number. And, um, and so that day was the day that I started changing my diet. And I went to the thing that I knew at that time, which was low carb. And in many ways, the next, you know, 10 years was recovering from that year of low carb or two years of low carb, but I, I was able to lose a lot of weight. I was able to normalize my, um, my blood sugars. I was able to normalize my blood pressure, which was elevated at the time. Um, so I had a lot of markers showing me that I was healthy. My autoimmune diseases were also getting worse, right? So it was, um, it was a trade-off, right? So I was improving certain markers of health and, um, worsening others through that. And then when my youngest daughter was like one and a half, closing in on two, 
um, it was actually the autoimmune flares that were very likely worsened um, by this low-carb approach that I had been on for a couple of years at that point to manage my weight that brought me to paleo. And when I first heard about paleo, I had the very stip- like stereotypical response of like, this sounds crazy. Why would you give up those foods? Like, aren't those foods healthy? Um, and then I started digging into it. And what got me to buy in was the science. So Professor Cordain at the time, um, his second book, The Paleo Answer, had just come out. He had a lot of, it was like three versions of his website ago, but he had a lot of articles that had links to scientific papers. Um, and he laid out the case for exclusions on paleo in a very scientific way. And that was what allowed me to engage with the paleo diet was the scientific foundation. And then once I got into it, I actually went sort of cold turkey paleo on August 31st, 2011. So I'm coming up to my ninth anniversary of paleo. Um, and then I started, you know, that helped a lot of things. It didn't help everything. So then for New Year's resolution that year, I, I started the autoimmune protocol, even though the autoimmune protocol at that time was super poorly defined. It was like a half page in Rob Wolf's paleo solution and then a chapter in paleo answer and the, they didn't align. So they both had eliminate extra and then the lists weren't the same. Um, and so I basically, you know, ended up defining and establishing what the AIP really was and certainly the way it is now at the same time as I was doing it. I was very influenced by um, Terry Wall's TEDx Iowa City t- uh, presentation, which went uh, viral that October in 2011, um, where she really talked about nutrient density for the mitochondria. And it was those influences that really brought me to applying my scientific background to the problem of my own health and really understanding uh, diet from the scientific perspective. And for me, because my background is in, you know, critical care medicine, um, gene therapy techniques, cancer cell biology, epithelial cell biology. Like I have this very, um, uh, you know, it's a very contemporary biology. It's not anthropology, right? It's, it's not a, uh, historical perspective. It's a physiology and biology perspective. And so that is the knowledge base that I have brought to understanding how foods interact with the human body throughout this entire experience, right? So eight and a half years, more than that, um, since I launched my website. And so for that entire time, I've been trying to understand how different components of foods interact with the human body um, in terms of contemporary biology and not in terms of understanding what our Paleolithic ancestors ate. And I've never stopped continuing to learn. Like this gut microbiome book is a perfect example of you know, as I was understanding the AIP, I was really looking at immune function, immune regulation, hormone regulation, and gut health was part of that. But switching gears and really um, digging into gut microbiome research, I think of it in terms of like adding a layer of depth to my understanding. It's not changing how I understand foods. It's expanding how I understand foods. And what that has done is as I've continued to learn, I've also continued to tinker with my diet. And over the years, what that has turned into is something that I don't, I don't know if paleo is the best label to describe how I eat now. I think 
the term paleo as uh, as is typically defined is still still now defined based on what you don't eat. And I just don't believe that what you eliminate makes a diet healthy or not. I think it's the foods you actually eat that is what determines whether or not that diet is healthy. And I think it's the nutrient density. Um, are you actually getting the nutrients that your body needs to thrive? I think that's the primary criteria of whether or not a diet supports health. And I think eliminations are things that you add on top of that to to address specific additional health challenges or health goals. And so my diet has, has really, I think, expanded over that time while I've always done things carefully. So, um, you know, this started with, uh, you know, in October of 2012, I started methodical reintroductions after having followed the AIP for about 10 months and um, a lot of those reintroductions were successful. I reintroduced uh, some kinds of nuts and seeds, cultured ghee, but no other dairy, coffee, chocolate, um, some organic corn and some white rice, but still very limited quantities. And then when I started preparing the autoimmune protocol lecture series in 2017, I realized that I um, I was scared. I was scared to reintroduce beyond that. And I had been in the same position that I see a lot of my students in of, um, I'm so comfortable with where I'm at that, and I've, I've figured out all of the logistics. I'm okay eating this way that I, I just don't, I don't want to reintroduce because I'm scared of what will happen. And I realized I really need to change my mindset around that because when you can expand your diet, when you're talking about nutrient dense foods, that's nutrient expansion. That allows you maybe to get uh, some different kind of phytochemical into your body that, you know, there's 12,000 different phytochemicals. We only really understand what a few hundred of them do, um, but we know that they're all really important. And so if I can expand my diet by successfully reintroducing new foods, that has the ability to improve the quality of my diet. And so I started challenging reintroductions. I was actually able to reintroduce some nightshades and some eggs. It was really great. And then this microbiome research has been like the, I don't know, it's its really solidified for me a lot of the foods for which um, the paleo community has been criticized for omitting um, when there's other diets that rely on them heavily that have been shown to be health promoting, right? Like legumes, especially like beans, Um and rice, for example, um, you know, which is forms the the base of diet in a lot of um, Asian cultures, right? Um, where those people have generally much lower risk of of chronic disease than we do in the Western countries. Um, and so, this microbiome research really helped me understand um, that one of the things that I think paleo has um, has failed in, in terms of serving its community is by lumping food groups together, right? So we go no grains, no dairy, no legumes, no processed foods. And the fact is, is that it's not fair to lump all of those foods together. Um, there are some terrible grains 
And there's actually some grains that have really good science showing, you know, different measurements of health improving. There's some terrible legumes and there's some legumes, again, that have been shown in scientific studies to benefit different markers of health. And when you look at the gut microbiome, you can see really, it's like really clear which grains benefit the gut microbiome and which don't, and which legumes benefit the gut microbiome and which don't. And so as I was been pulling together this information, I've been like, okay, I'm going to try gluten-free oats. I know gluten for me, like I cannot touch something that has touched something that has touched gluten. It is, um, it is a really potent trigger of my autoimmune symptoms. It may be because I have celiac genes. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's never going to be something that I, I can eat. And I, and I recognize that. Um, but in, in pulling together all the information for this gut microbiome book, I started challenging methodically, right? Doing methodical reintroductions, following the reintroduction protocol as sort of outlined in the autoimmune protocol. Um, I started challenging a lot of legumes, uh, H2 dairy. I finally tried tomatoes, which I was just, again, like I had tried a ton of other nightshades and been okay with them and tomatoes I was scared of. Um, switching from white to brown rice, which, um, you know, was a hard thing to wrap my head around because the paleo line is that we should eat white rice because all the anti-nutrients are concentrated in the husk that's polished off. Um, and it just turns out that when you look at the gut microbiome, that both, you know, as long as rice is cooked and then cooled, it's very high in resistant starch, and then it's beneficial for the gut microbiome, but brown rice is more so than white rice. So that was a really hard thing to wrap my head around because of being so steeped in um, these sort of paleo rules. Um, but it's, I haven't had an unsuccessful reintroduction. You know, looking at all of these things. That doesn't mean that all I'm eating is like brown rice and lentils. Um, they've become, uh, uh, like very moderate additions to my diet. My diet is still mostly vegetables and fruit and a moderate serving of protein. Like if you look at my plates, it's still three quarters veggies. Um, but I've been able to start incorporating more of these other foods that the research shows are, are really great for the gut microbiome and therefore are doing things like improving gut barrier health and reducing inflammation. And I think that it's it requires a more nuanced approach, right? So it requires being able to not lump everything together and just say, hey, um, we need to select the grains that we eat carefully and we need to select the legumes that we eat carefully. We need to traditionally prepare them. That's still really important. Um, but we can, you know, if we take this nutrient density approach where meeting our nutritional needs is the primary criteria, um, then it changes, right? Then we're eating what we need to thrive and then it changes how we tolerate some foods that may have some anti-nutrients, but also still have a lot of valuable nutrition to provide the body. I love all of that. I, um, I think there's a lot of things too that we've talked about in the show that are um, all over the place. If I was a listener and trying to like track it, I even myself, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm like, okay, I want to add mushrooms, I want to, 
you know, three quarters veg, but I also want to make sure that I'm not going too low carb because of what it could do to Mm -hmm. my hormones and my gut health. Like it sounds very complicated, but I will say doing things like meal planning where, Mm -hmm. you know, you just write down, okay, I'm looking at my meal plan and I have a lot of chicken on here. Let me swap out grass fed beef. Let me swap out seafood. Okay. Now I have additional, um, nutrient-dense foods, higher omega-3 foods, higher um, nutrient density and the minerals and different kinds of things that we talk about in the seafood. It's It sounds overwhelming, but it's as simple as just like making sure that you have certain things on your meal plan several times a week. And for me, that can be as simple as like making a homemade tuna salad. You know what I mean? Like yep. it's, um, it doesn't have to be like a fancy kind of um, you're shucking your own oysters at home. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> that is like, <laughs> a, you know, a Christmas treat for us. That's not happening on a Tuesday night. <laughs> um, um, I, I uh, reorganized my kitchen drawers and found my oyster shucker yesterday and uh, and went, wow. Like I'd forgotten I had one because it's been so long since I've shucked my own oysters. Yeah, I got it for Matt as a Christmas present for myself a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, but I also I've never done that. What are you talking about? I know, right? <laughs> um, I also got him like those protective gloves and stuff too. Cause I just envisioned quite a catastrophe. Um, okay. Are you ready for me to kind of jump in? Do you feel yeah. like, all right, cool. I don't want to, I didn't want to interrupt, but I wanted to make sure. Um, so I would say, Overall, as listeners, you'll be shocked to learn, um, Sarah and I have kind of a similar approach, but admittedly, um, mine is a lot less focused on as many nutrients as I know Sarah's committed to. So I will, um, if Sarah's is paleo plus 80-20, I think mine is probably more like 75-25. But I think it's also important to understand like my goal is no longer weight loss. Um, I mean, I lost 134 pounds at the peak of my weight loss is I think what I um, recall and shared with everyone. But I only got to that number on the scale one day and I did it through um, disordered eating, um, which I justified with intermittent fasting. I was never really that weight. I literally starved myself for two days to get to that weight, to see it on a scale. Um, and so as a result of that, like really low carb period where I was, you know, having disordered eating, I had digestive distress, which caused uh, nutrient deficiency. And I had a thyroid nodule and a huge flare. And Sarah and I, so like Sarah and a medical professional and I had to work on getting my health restored during that period because um, it, it got really, really bad health wise. And I needed to recover, not just like gut health recover, like my my body was really in a bad place. Um, and so it was actually in 2015 that I said, is your paleo challenge justifying disordered eating? And I wrote that in a blog post that was kind of controversial at the time because people were doing paleo challenges, you know, on one month off the next, on one month off the next. And I was like, that's yo-yoing. That's not, that's not being paleo. That's not incorporating 
a um, nutrient-dense anti-inflammatory lifestyle or whatever paleo is doing for you, that's using it as a yo-yo diet, just the same way yeah. as, as anything else. And so, you know, the more I became aware of how this was happening, not just to me, but many in the community, it's where, you know, you and I really started talking about metrics of health and different kinds of things in the show. There was a lot of fat phobia in the community, which I experienced, and I wrote about that. You know, so my perspective and kind of awakening and all of this is still very much health focused. Um, you know, I want health and wellness and longevity for my family. My original goal with starting paleo was that I had so little energy. I was watching my toddlers like play in the yard and could not physically get myself up off the sofa to go play with them because I was so exhausted. And so to think about that being my original goal and where I am today, I feel that food enabled me to have the energy that I needed to get more active. And I am certainly worlds apart from where I was in terms of my energy level and um, just wellness in general. But, um, you know, I did put on weight as I um, came out of that low carb paleo period, because like I said, it wasn't a real weight. It was never like that was me starved. That was me, uh, you know, with like low water and no food. You dehydrated. Know, totally. And... I was I was dehydrated and I was I mean, if I'm being honest, there was probably anorexia there. I went from just one I was training binge eating disorder for all different kinds of other disordered eatings that I was justifying. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, I put on weight, but I was doing strongman at the time. And so as I was putting on that weight, it was actually a lot of muscle that I was putting on. And I felt very strong and well. And I think everybody knows about all that who's been listening to the podcast for a long time. Um, you know, I I ended up really rebounding my health and being in a very good place until my back injury, which then I couldn't move for a year. And my body was like, whoa, how do you go from being a competitive athlete to not moving? Like, this is not good. And so I obviously put on weight from that period of time as well. But I have maintained a significant amount of that weight that I originally lost. I just don't weigh myself because I've had a lifetime of disordered eating, body dysmorphia, and really self-hate. If I see a number on a scale, like I have this association with my worth with that number. And so my focus on body positivity and self-love has become very important to me as I optimize my health, as I think about it from the perspective of like, is what I'm consuming going to give me wellness and longevity? And um, sometimes that's the motivating factor that I need to like not get ice cream or whatever it is. And it comes from a much different place of um, deprivation and punishment and those kinds of things that I really did have for so long in my life. And it's not linear. Like for me, I don't, it just doesn't like, you know, a flip is switched and all of a sudden you're fixed. Like it is, um, something that I consistently work on and yep. quarantine has not been easy. Like I, I definitely have seen us kind of on a more roller coaster than not journey. I mentioned when we had COVID, like I just was craving carbs like crazy, not, not good carbs. Like I, all I wanted <laughs> was refined carbohydrates. And, and I knew that that wasn't ideal for us. Right. And so it was like, okay, how do I, find healthier carbohydrates for us to eat? How do I optimize if we are going to be eating rice? Like, okay, let's cook it in broth, you know, like different kinds of things like that. And I think 
that's really where I have changed my mindset is like, first and foremost, I think of myself similarly as a nutrivore, as someone who prioritizes nutrient density. So like, I recognize that, you know, we can't have a diet of only white rice, but if we're sick and, you know, that is the only thing that we're able to kind of get and keep down, how can I optimize it? I can put in, you know, grass-fed ghee, I can cook it in bone broth, I can put kelp on top and then Mm -hmm. our next meal I can find something else like sweet potatoes or whatever if that's the carbohydrate if if all we're wanting when we're sick is carbohydrate but um that's obviously an exception that's not our usual but I'm just giving that as as an example of um ways that our mindset has changed over the last 10 years so um I do focus on adding nutrient density and vegetables to what I would essentially describe as a gluten-free, corn-free, legume-free. I would love to be able to eat those, but I just genuinely cannot. They do not agree with me. Um, Nightshade-free and what I will call low-quality dairy-free diet. I am not dairy-free in the same way that Sarah is. I can tolerate um, more dairy, but not like every day. I have to... Um, moderate that as something that is not one of those ideal foods, but is one of those like I can tolerate it foods, except the exception to that being um, uh, non-protein dairies. So like fat only. So I can do, Mm. I can do cream in my coffee every morning. Of course I do grass fed and we do cook with ghee. Um, without like restriction like that's and Sarah knows because she was here and we were cooking muffins and the you know the boys like made a mistake not thinking like oh we we have butter nope Sarah needed ghee um so I I think for us um though that's how I would like describe it to someone else like when we go out when we were on the cruise ship I'm like okay I'm gluten-free corn-free like free nightshade free um and they're like whoa that's a lot like they think that's a lot but compared to where we were um big big difference in the thought process I think yeah and I I actually have something very similar so if I'm in a restaurant you're back in the olden days um, before COVID. Yes, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, I basically, you know, I have my lines that I can't cross. So I would say I'm gluten-free, dairy-free, and soy-free, right? Those would be my, I cannot, I cannot do those things and uh, walk out of here without crippling joint pain or uh, severe uh, gastrointestinal distress. So those are my, those are my things. Um, but, uh, but in terms of you know, I, I really think of it in terms of like my daily diet. Again, I, the term I most resonate with now is Nutrivore. That is the term that to me best describes my approach because I look at food as providing my body with the resources it needs to do all the things it wants to do. And those resources are nutrients. And so by adopting the term nutrivore, what I'm what I'm doing is I'm instead of saying I eat these foods and not these foods, I'm saying that the primary goal of my diet as a whole is to supply my body with all of the essential and non-essential nutrients it needs to thrive from my food. Like that that is the goal. And I think that what I like about uh this sort of uh Nutrivorous, nutrivorous, 
ooh, how would you pronounce that? Nutrivorous, right? Omnivorous, herbivorous. Oh, wait. Yeah. Nutrivorous. Anyways, uh, turning the word nutrivore into an adjective, um, the way that I think of that approach is that you can you can basically fit junky calories into your diet if the bulk of your diet is made up with super nutrient dense foods because those junky calories at that point they're not taking away from meeting that goal of getting all of the nutrients that your body needs and that doesn't mean that i eat junky calories every day but it starts to get away from good foods and bad foods right red light and green light and black and white and yes and no and it gets into like what's the quality of my diet did i meet my nutritional needs today um, and did I meet my nutritional needs today with some, you know, energy deficit? Well, if I have an energy deficit, meaning I didn't hit the number of calories for weight maintenance that I know that I need, um, but I hit all my nutritional goals, well, then I have room for something that's not optimal. I, I like thinking of it that way because it gets away from stigmatizing certain foods and then I also, you know, I still within that, gluten's not a good food for the gut. <laughs> like it's, it still recognizes that there are foods that are, um, they're not good foods for anybody. But I, I just, I really don't think that everybody needs to be strictly gluten-free. I do. My daughters do. Um, I don't, I don't think that it is something that everyone needs to be to be healthy. I don't want to to demonize gluten. That doesn't mean that I think that, you know, wheat is a great food. I don't think it's adding to anybody's diet. It's definitely not doing great things for the gut microbiome or for gut health in general, but that's different than saying you have to like, it's, you know, completely forbidden and you have to be absolute, like it's zero or you're somehow a horrible person because you eat the occasional slice of bread. And I think that that's why the term Nutrivore has has resonated with me so much over the last couple of years is because it gets away from demonizing food and getting to, I think, the thing that's most important, which is meeting the body's nutritional needs. And then you can layer eliminations on top of that or additional nutri nutrition focus on top of that to meet specific health challenges and health goals. So, for example, I think of the autoimmune protocol now as instead of a sub diet of paleo, as it was sort of originally formed, I think of it as a sub diet of a nutrivore approach. Um, so I, you know, if you think about the broader, here's the the broad general health, as Holly asked at the, at the beginning, what's what is the recommendation for general health? The recommendation is that you actually get all the nutrients your body needs, um, and that's not just vitamins and minerals, um, but that includes things like phytochemicals and fiber. Um, uh, essential amino acids, omega-3 fatty acids, right? Sufficient protein and, and sufficient uh, carbohydrates. So, you know, we've talked on the show before about how um, there's now emerging science showing that the gut microbiome really sort of needs a, a minimal amount of, of carbohydrate. That minimal amount is probably at least 150 grams a day, if not 200 grams a day. And so, um, and so I, I think of... Nutrivore is this general approach, and then you can layer on eliminations as needed. Um, but if I were to, yeah, if I were to, to, if I was to describe my diet to somebody who was serving me food, 
I would describe it as here's the lines I can't cross, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free. If I was talking to my neighbor who, you know, wanted to make some dietary changes, I would probably use the term nutrivore and talk about the importance of eating a lot of vegetables and higher quality meat and eating more seafood and eating fruit and uh, a serving of mushrooms a day, a palm full of nuts every day. Um, I would talk about snout to tail eating. I would talk about um, why soaking legumes, even when they technically don't need it, right? Like lentils, it says on the box that you don't need to soak them, but actually it's still much better to soak them before cooking them. So I would talk about, I would talk about that and it would, it would really end up being, um, this focus on, on eating more nutrient dense foods and allowing them to displace the foods that aren't doing us any favors, um, rather than eliminating foods that are sort of put into this you know, no category. Thank you. That makes me feel, I don't want to say like better because I don't feel badly, <laughs> but I think it's helpful for all of our listeners and myself included to, to be reminded of what our ultimate goal is. And then, okay, now how do we, how do we get there in a way that is sustainable? That's another word that we use all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're, overly restrictive to optimize um, health and you can't stick with it, that isn't good either. Um, I think the reference that I've used multiple times is like, if you find yourself falling face first into a pizza buffet Mm -hmm. um, after, then it was overly restrictive and that's not sustainable for you. So how, how can you still optimize, but not cause yourself to kind of boomerang to the other side, right? Because that's not going to be that's going to undo all of the good that you might have done if you know you flare um like sarah said from an autoimmune condition or you know your gut health as a result you know you feed all the bad bacteria instead of good bacteria like blah 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 right so there's there's all that um i think just some of the other things i'll point out about me because i don't have a gallbladder um we've talked Mm -hmm. on the show before fats are something that is i have to pay particular attention to and so i talked about using ghee and butter we also um have added more olive oil since we talked about how good that is on the show um i didn't used to like keep that on the counter where we cook you know what i mean but like now there's a thing of olive oil so that it's what you reach for um We also use avocado oil, especially like mayonnaise. We, you know, we buy avocado oil mayonnaise now where years ago we would have made our own. Um, And we use a lot less lard than we used to. It's not that, you know, there's a particular reason for that other than just we kind of got burned out on it. And then pretty much only use lard for the occasional deep frying and pie crusts like that. And and those are not regular features of, of my diet. That's where lard is kind of it's, it's become like, that's Lard's position in my, in my kitchen is for those really specific uses that there's no other fat that works for that. If that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, and back when we were using a lot of lard, we weren't using butter or ghee at all. And so it was an easier replacement for something like that because from a flavor and texture perspective, but since we have added those in as something that doesn't bother our family, like we have less of a need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is like you, it is intentional with flavor um, that we would use something like that. Yeah. And um, 
I mean, I do eat gluten-free treats. I think anyone who tells you that they like strictly don't, unless you're like in the elimination phase of autoimmune or in an elimination diet or something like that. Um, for me, I think I see them the most in like a um, breads. I like, I really like cinnamon raisin bread. And so mm. I will have like a slice of cinnamon raisin bread, maybe a couple of times a week. Um and then um, we also do the same thing. I didn't hear you mention wild rice. Um, that's actually – so I have a di- more difficult time digesting than you do. We don't do legumes. I don't do oats. Um, maybe, like, occasionally, like, twice a year I might do oats, and then I'll remember why I don't do oats. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, – No, we do we do eat wild rice. That is um, – I like oh, – it's – oh, I probably cook rice – or wild rice about once a week. And then there might be enough for like two meals, if that makes sense. Yeah. So my, my preference, my favorite is wild rice because it's, Mm -hmm. it's so nutty. And for some reason I don't have a difficult time digesting it. Who knows? Um, maybe it's has to do with the way that it's grown and the pesticides. Yeah. It's it's not actually, um, wild rice used to grow wild where I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and we never like went and harvested it. But my mom would show us like, see, that's the thing that we're eating. And look at how much work it would be if we were going to pick it all. And it was, um, we were just one of those like botanically aware families. We would go pick wild berries and wild mushrooms and ramps and all kinds of things. Um, but it's not, it's not actually a rice. So it is a grain. It grows as a grass, but it grows in a dry environment and it's quite a different I don't remember, I don't know how, like, at what taxonomy order, like, it's it's different. So it's in a different family from brown rice. Yes. And legumes. Okay, well, that would make sense why I maybe have a better time digesting that than something else. But, um, and we do brown rice pasta. I I think if I said once a week, that's more, maybe once every other week. Yeah, Um, we're about the same. And I, although for the people who follow me on Instagram, I placed a Thrive order and they have like all of the brown rice pasta, the, the brand that we like. They have like every kind on that uh, on the website. And I literally bought all of them <laughs> in my like carb cloud. I and when the box arrived, I no longer was, you know, like feeling so sick. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing with all these boxes of pasta? <laughs> um. Yeah. Anyway, I I cannot explain to you like how, and a lot of people say that it changes your taste buds. Like, I I don't even remember being that obsessed with carbs, but once the box came, I was like, wow, that's, that's <laughs> well, a lot. That's one of the things though with Thrive Market is it it kind of it hits that same uh it really hits the like Costco mentality of yeah I of course I need a ten pound bag. Right. Why Why don't I need a 10-pound Well, and if I'm of... having it shipped, I could just, I mean, they're still in my pantry, like, months later. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, we're we're going through them. It's fine. It's not going to go bad. And I think that was my thought process is, like, I'll just get them all and we can try them all. <laughs> um, anyway, but I, if I am going to do um, more than just, like, a little bit, if I'm going to have, like, a meal of rice or pasta I do try to ensure that I have another very veggie rich meal on that Mm -hmm. day that to make up for the overall vegetables and nutrients like you said that that I'm trying to achieve every day and I try to make sure that I move my body that doesn't mean that I'm like earning those calories but I also know that like 
more carbohydrate density doesn't sit well with me. Like I just, after a lifetime of um, having yo-yo diets and hormonal eating and all of that kind of stuff. Like if I have a super carbohydrate dense meal and haven't moved my body and I'm talking like walking around the neighborhood or, you know, working out in the yard or getting on the Peloton, like, or when I was swimming, like I, I try to not tell myself I need to earn it, but I also have to tell myself, like, I'm not going to sit down to this giant bowl of pasta without anything else and having not moved my body because I won't feel good. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? It's like, it's, it's about how I feel and I have to listen to my body. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. And I actually, I, I, um, the way that I make pasta now, when I do make it, it is so different from what a past, like, in oh, for sure. my yeah, yeah. pre-paleo, like before I was really aware of things like the importance of vegetables, right? There'd be vegetables in there for flavor, but it's basically like pasta with something on it to make the pasta taste good um, rather than a blank slate. But now it's um, like I make a uh, a seafood pasta like maybe once a month that has like uh, calamari and uh shrimp and scallops and then uh maybe something like lagacina and then uh the sauce is usually made with um some kind of root vegetable pureed into broth um celery root um is my favorite and then there's also like usually onions and mushrooms and asparagus and like it's it's uh it's almost like the 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 noodles are a formality so that I can call it past um, it's there's so much other good stuff around the noodles. The noodles are basically just contributing the starchy carbohydrate to the meal at that point. And it it's delicious. And like, well, my 10 year old does not like shellfish in any way. She, I think, had a stomach bug one night after I made this seafood pasta about a year ago. And she has not touched anything, anything shellfish related ever since. Uh, and because we don't know if it was a stomach bug or an allergy, we've just, she gets to have something else. Um, but the other of us, the three quarters of the Ballantine household, like love it. And it's such a great way to like up nutrient density. It's eating more shellfish than we like can fit into a, a, a different kind of meal. And, um, and I don't feel bad about cooking rice pasta at all. I mean, especially going through all of the gut microbiome research and how great rice is for the gut microbiome. It, it's just become, um, it's not a base food because it doesn't have a ton of nutrition, but in the context of a meal that incorporates other nutrient dense options and has lots of vegetables, then it becomes a good contribution. That does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we approach it similarly. Um, Matt really likes linguine with clam sauce and he likes mm -hmm. it traditionally with 90% pasta and like 10% clams. And so on the day, on the day that he has that, maybe once every two months, like we serve a big salad with it, you know? And, yeah. But the rest of the time we're making things very similarly to that. And um, we even just uh, did like a blog post on how I make casseroles. And I think there's like 14 servings of vegetables to like 
one serving of rice in that thing. You know what I mean? And um, it really is a way to kind of combine it all together and make it be filling, but it's not the um, majority of what's in there. Like I, I think our goal is probably at least 50, 50, but I think it probably ends up being more like 60, 75% other things between protein Mm -hmm. and veggies and then and then it looks similarly to what a what a plate would be of protein vegetables carbohydrate kind of thing you know what I mean in a pasta or something dish so that's um, the same way that's like that's exactly the way we treat it right it's it is the starchy carb portion of the dinner plate yeah um so I do also, I, I don't think we've kind of mentioned, I do still take supplements. I have daily collagen. Um, I don't do daily bone broth as much. And that is simply because Matt is no longer home to make it for me. Um, and it's not something I've prioritized making. But I do, I have bought um, brands and there are many brands out there that make bone broth that don't have um, nightshades in them. That's the only thing that mm-hmm. I'm looking for is like, is it made with bones? And did they use nightshades at the base? Okay, I can have it. So um, the broth that I have been drinking lately, just the last few months, has not been as good as Matt's homemade broth. Um, but I am still taking daily. But could anything be as good as Matt's know, homemade broth? I know, it really is. That's the thing is I got so spoiled that... Um, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. I'm whining now. Okay, so um, I miss Matt and his cooking. Has, have I mentioned that? <laughs> um, but I take daily collagen and um, supplements that we've talked on the show before about. I take liver pills because I am MTHFR and I need a whole form of uh, B vitamins that my body will actually process. And mm-hmm. I don't eat enough snout to tail. Um so that's a good way for me to kind of like get a, a, a backup of the nutrients that I do need. Um, and I also do vitamin D and magnesium, which we've talked about on the show a lot too. So, um, and I have started adding mushrooms with more intention. So like when I throw together, I do a lot of stir fries for the boys for meals. Like it's just whatever's in the fridge and we throw it yep. all together um, with some like uh, coconut aminos or really the only kind of soy that I will do is tamari. And I end up doing that if we're basically out of coconut aminos, Mm because it's easier to find locally. But um, that I would do on like a stir fry or something like that. And not even necessarily with rice. A lot of the time our stir fry is just like vegetables and meat that I find in the fridge. And so it's easy for me to throw mushrooms into that. Or if I'm scrambling eggs in the morning, I'll throw mushrooms in there. Um, spinach is another one that's easy to just throw in because it cooks yeah. really quickly. So I find that those are the two that I'm usually reaching for in addition to whatever kind of leftover vegetables we have. Like those are the two that I grab the most because I know that they are um, good nutrient adds, right? Like in my brain, I'm like, how can I add more? It's like a math equation. Like how can I add more nutrients to this thing that I'm going to um, consume anyway? So um Yeah, I think while I've added things in, it might not be as um, thoughtful as your particular ads to ensure that you are adding to your um, microbiome and other kinds of things. But I'm also very aware of the things that we are adding and what they 
are or aren't doing and um, just being more mindful of balance because I think social and emotional well-being in terms of sustainability and um, disordered eating has been so impactful to me that I've had to learn to listen to my body and really find a balance on how I feel in terms of digestion and energy more than anything else for it to work long term. Like I don't, I don't want to go off the rails. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to, you know, um, have another flare because I'm not doing enough or, you know, have low energy because I'm, you know, not, um, focusing on nutrients enough. So it is, it really is, um, a balance, which is hard if you come from a place of, um, dysmorphia or eating disorders or any kind of stuff like that. But, um, that's why you just, I mean, for me, I've worked on that stuff. I've gone to therapy, I've, you know, like really kind of become self-aware. And I think, um, that obviously has nothing to do with like what I eat, but I think it is important if, uh, the context of struggling with this kind of stuff that it's not, you can't just solve it in a vacuum of like putting something different on your plate. You do need to deal with if you're having, emotion with your food to address the emotion because you're never going to solve the problem if it's not addressed from an underlying perspective. Um, I love that. Yeah, I think that one of the things that resonating with the term Nutrivore and really sort of adopting that as how I describe my diet, um, one of the things that has allowed me to do is um, have a healthier emotional relationship with food. And I think, you know, one of the things that I want to sort of remind our listeners is just like when we first adopted paleo, uh, nine to 10 years ago, um, that for me was always a lifestyle. It was always going to be, and this is, this is the way I eat now. And it's evolved and my diet has expanded and I think of it as Nutrivore, but you could also call it AIP maintenance phase or paleo plus or 80, 20, right? Like there's, there's other labels that we could use that I think are, are legitimate to describe how I eat now, but it's also still a lifestyle, right? So it's still about, um, lifelong health. It's still about, you know, hopefully improving my longevity. It's still about managing, chronic illness and autoimmune disease. Um, and it still includes a focus on lifestyle. So getting enough sleep, managing stress, living an active lifestyle, uh, nature time, all of those things. I, uh, work with a functional medicine doctor. Um, so all of those pieces are still pieces of the health puzzle for me. Um, but what I've been able to do by, um, I think really just sort of like, uh, shedding, the dogmatic rules that have been associated with the paleo diet for so long by just deciding that those, those rules don't apply to me. I get to look at the science and make more nuanced decisions about what I'm going to eat and what I'm not going to than just lumping all of these things together into one bad food group and all these other things and together into one good food group. And, um, and being able to, to have that more, I think like just sort of balanced approach um, it's really allowed me to have a healthier relationship with food. And one of the, the side effects that that's had is I have found portion control to be much easier. That's for me has always been a, 
real struggle. I, I talk with people who have a tendency to undereat. I was like, yeah, that's not my problem. I could easily sock away 6,000 calories in a meal. That's not, it's not, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be like, whoa, food baby. And I'm going to love it. Um, but it's, it's made it, I think there's a piece of having a healthier relationship with food that is helping to regulate my cravings and my appetite and not, you know, Stacey, did you know that we eat gluten-free treats too in our household? Probably, probably knew. <laughs> probably knew that. Um, you know, there, I, I feel like there's room for that in moderation. We don't have dessert every day. Um, we try as much as we can to have desserts made with healthier ingredients. Um, and so they're more often than not, they're homemade, but it's still a thing that we have. Like it's, uh, to me, I think what getting, I don't know, getting beyond paleo has allowed me, I think in many ways to, to fix some of the, um, food relationship problems that I was still having even on the paleo diet. Like I said, I'm, I know I'm not alone. <laughs> like, no. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. So um, I think that we might actually have some additional thoughts on this and um, some, some, some news, some something. Yes, we do. I believe we have some thoughts that maybe are not rated G. I am so jazz hands excited for this surprise we are working on for you guys just gonna have to like you know my finger if you can see my fingers they're jazz hands and, <laughs> and I'm like ha, ha, ha. Uh, I'm, um, I'm doing I'm doing the uh Montgomery Burns evil evil hands <laughs> is what I'm doing right now so we have something we have something we have um, been talking about doing some changes on the show for a long time, and you're seeing some of them with the name change of the show. And one of them is also, um, you guys know that we're probably a little more restrained and thoughtful um, and uh, intentional with how we approach everything on the show. You've heard us talk about, you know, our pages and pages of notes. Um, so it's, it's going to be refreshing to open up and not have to worry about being rated G. And, um, maybe if you really want to hear, um, the true unfiltered thoughts on things, pay attention. We're going to have some surprises for you in the next few weeks. So, um, if you're listening to this and you're a few weeks behind, then you can skip ahead <laughs> and find out what's going on. But if you're listening to this this week, just know that we'll have some information coming out. We will also be announcing it in our newsletters. So if you're not already subscribed on realeverything.com and thepaleomom.com, make sure you subscribed to our newsletters because, um, our, subscribers are always the first to find out about information mm -hmm. and stuff other than um, when it comes live on the podcast. So um, that way you don't miss it there either. I feel like we need some kind of like, I don't know, it's like a drum roll or some kind of like anticipation sound effect right now. Um, you don't think that the mwahaha was sufficient? <laughs> uh, well, uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week.
Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.